don't have enough time to sit down and read all the best Bitcoin articles? Well, let us read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. All right, crew, welcome back to the Crypto Economy Podcast. We are back in action. Um, I am terribly sorry that I did not get an episode out yesterday in particular, or Monday. Um, I got back uh, later on Monday than we had thought, and then was just crazy busy just trying to get the house back in order and trying to get in the flow of things. And then on both days, just trying to get so much done and also trying to record with uh, I mean, it's hard enough to record with three dogs in the house that insist on barking at everything that moves through the neighborhood, but uh, with a house full of people as well, it's kind of hard to say, all right, everybody shut up and do absolutely nothing for the next, you know, hour and 20 minutes while I record an episode and talk to myself in front of my computer. Um, so it just made it uh, really difficult, and I decided to just hold off and wait till I could really get back into the swing of things here on Wednesday. With that, we are back at it. We got another crypto quick read today, and this one is by Petri Basson, and he has a two-part uh, article series here um, about the history of blockchain and uh, a little bit with cryptography and um, peer-to-peer computing, all kinds of stuff. And then uh, the next one is about cypherpunks, and I was really enjoying this one. Uh, I think this one's particularly fun. I love the history lessons about all this, and this one does a really good job of summing it up from a little bit different perspective um, or direction than I think I've covered in the past. So I wanted to hit these because I really enjoyed reading them, and uh, uh, it looks like uh, he's going to have another couple of ones in this series. So these are really, really good articles. Again, it's Petri Basson, uh, P-E-T-R-I-B-A-S-S-O-N. You can find him on Twitter. This is actually the one I'm reading today is actually posted on his LinkedIn profile. Um, so uh, I will link to that as well as uh, his Twitter um, in the um, in the show notes and in the Twitter post just so everybody can check him out. Be sure to follow him and you won't miss uh, the next articles in the series when he releases them. Um, this one was actually released quite a while ago. Both of these are. I think the second one about cypherpunks was released in January of this year. Uh, This one was published on November 20th of 2017, and it is titled The Untold History of Blockchain. So without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and jump into our crypto quick read for the day by Petri Basson, The Untold History of Blockchain. I always believed that to really understand something and where it is going, you have to understand where it came from. In my own search to better understand blockchain, I've gone deep down the blockchain rabbit hole, asking how did it start and why is this important? As it turns out, any blockchain technology is not something that was created by chance or out of the blue by an anonymous genius called Satoshi Nakamoto. There is a long and fascinating, mostly unknown history to this technology. 
In this article and the ones to follow, I will explain a fraction of that history to help you to understand Bitcoin and the blockchain technology, where it all came from, and where it might be going. In the beginning, there was nothing. To get an idea of the building blocks that the blockchain is built on, you have to understand the history of three things. Encryption, open source software development, and peer-to-peer -peer sharing. Encryption. One can start any discussion on encryption in a variety of places. I have chosen to start this particular discussion in 1991 with a little-known programmer born in Camden, New Jersey, the son of a concrete truck driver, Phil Zimmerman. Phil had dreamed of creating an encryption system for the masses based on public key encryption that would allow people to communicate freely on the internet without the risk of surveillance. But juggling a freelance job and two children, he had never found the time to realize this dream. In early 1991, he learned about a proposed piece of U.S. Senate legislation that would force electronic communication services providers to hand over individuals' private messages. This was the tipping point for Zimmerman, and he decided to develop a tool that would help individuals freely communicate on the internet. In late 1991, after working on the project tirelessly and almost losing his house in the process, he released Pretty Good Privacy, or PGP. This was the first ever publicly available encryption tool that allowed people to communicate freely using 128-bit encryption and Diffie-Hellman for key management. The U.S. government, however, didn't share Zimmerman's ideals. After PGP was publicly shared and quickly spread around the world, he was charged under the Arms Export Control Act by the United States Customs Service. The government regarded cryptographic software as a munition and only allowed the export of low-strength encryption. Luckily, in early 1996, the government dropped their case against him due to a lack of evidence that he shipped PGP overseas or that he had posted it on Usenet. This story is significant because at its core, the code that Zimmerman wrote was nothing other than a form of speech. Therefore, had the U.S. been successful in their case against Zimmerman, they would have been able to control the distribution of anything written in the United States, which would have arguably been a violation of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. End quote. You would live knowing that every email, every text message, every bank transaction you did, and every picture you owned was being monitored and viewed by somebody else. Some may argue that this is the case today, but at least you have the tools to protect yourself if you want to. Without Zimmerman and many others who tirelessly worked on encryption, all our communication would be open for anyone to see, and the internet may never have developed as it did. Open source software. Surprising to most is the fact that there was once a time when most software was open and free for use. You could buy and edit software as you please to suit your own needs. A programmer working at the MIT AI Labs, Richard Stallman, 
did exactly this. All of the printers at MIT were on a different floor, so he added an electronic messaging system that would let a user know when their job was printed or if the printer was jammed, saving everyone a lot of time walking up to the printers to check if jobs had printed or not. In 1979, he famously called it a crime against humanity when Brian Reed placed time bombs in his software to restrict unlicensed access to it. When the university installed a new Xerox 9700 printers, Installman and the other hackers at the AI labs were refused access to the source code. He was convinced that people need to be able to freely modify the software they used. He quit his job at MIT and started the GNU project. The GNU manifesto states that users should be free to run software, share it, study it, and modify it. They also developed the GNU General Public License. Code released under this license can be reused in other computer programs as long as it is also released under the same or a compatible license. One of the most famous programs that runs on this license today is Linux, created by Linus Torvalds in 1991, the same year PGP was released. You may know it better as the operating system that runs your smartphones and tablet computers, or the system that runs 99% of the world's top 500 supercomputers. What makes Linux different from any other software is the fact that it is completely open source and at any point in time, there are up to 10,000 people working on it. With the open nature of Linux, some may argue that it weakens the system because hackers can also see and modify the code. However, because of the size of the community, there are various phases in the patch development, review, and merging cycle when Linux is updated, therefore making the process much more robust and secure. In 2005, Torvalds created Git a version control system for tracking changes in computer files and coordinating work on those files among multiple people. This eventually led to the development of sites such as GitHub, which are used for the development and review of all code changes made to Bitcoin. You can go to this link right now and see all the changes that have been made to Bitcoin. Every change is reviewed and tested by an entire community, making this a technology that doesn't belong to just one company or individual. It is truly open source, and users are free to run it, share it, study it, and modify it as they wish. This can be seen with multiple hard forks and alternative coins based on Bitcoin. Truly open and free, as intended by Richard Stallman. Peer-to-peer -peer sharing The last thing you need to understand is the technology that makes blockchain so resilient that not even governments such as China have been able to stop it. In July 2001, Bram Cohen released a program called BitTorrent. It quickly became the arch nemesis of the entire movie industry as it became the one-stop shop to illegally download any movie, series, or song. Despite numerous lawsuits and raids against websites like The Pirate Bay, the multi-million dollar entertainment industry has still not been able to stop this technology. Why is that? BitTorrent is a peer-to-peer -peer network. All this really means is that each user becomes part of the network. Instead of a traditional network where all the information is on one central server, with a peer-to-peer -peer network, it is spread out among all the users. 
For BitTorrent, that means that as soon as you download a movie or a song, you can also share it with the rest of the network. Just like the mythological Hydra, when you cut off one head, ten more grow in its place. Whenever one site or one member of the network is shut down, ten more pop up to take their place. This makes the network truly resilient to any form of censorship or manipulation. This exact same technology is used in the blockchain and Bitcoin. Anyone can become a node which holds a copy of the blockchain and shares it with the rest of the network. Currently, there's approximately 9,000 nodes running the various versions of Bitcoin in the world. This means that if you ever wanted to stop Bitcoin, you would have to find and shut down all 9,000 of these nodes at the same time, a task which would be nearly impossible. See you in the next article. I think that's enough blockchain knowledge for one article. In the following article, we'll go into the cypherpunk movement and how Bitcoin was eventually born from that group. And that will conclude Petri's article, uh, kind of digging into the building blocks of blockchain and uh, the history behind uh, all the pieces that are beginning to uh, show why Bitcoin is possible. I know we've covered a lot of history uh, and stuff in the past, but I thought this was a really good sum up of kind of the main bullet points. And the next one's really good too, so I'm excited to get to it. Uh, a huge thank you to Petri for uh, this little article series here. Um, as I said, I always love run, uh, reading about the history of cypherpunks and this technology. I think that's a huge, just like he said at the beginning, if you don't know where it came from or why it was built, you're not going to understand what makes sense for the future. Um, you're going to have a really bizarre narrative of you know what all is going on and uh, why the technology is useful in the first place. So... A big thank you to him for this article. Do not forget to check him out on Twitter. And uh, if you want to dig into this article or see any of the other stuff that he has written, uh, he has it posted on his LinkedIn page, uh, as well as his Medium, which is uh, where his other one is posted that we will be getting to tomorrow, probably. So don't miss that, and be sure to check him out, as well as all of his other work. Um, I'll just link to all that stuff in the show notes and the Twitter post, so it should be easy to get to. Uh, one thing, though, is BitTorrent was always a fascinating technology to me. Um, uh, it's one of those things that uh, while I was growing up and kind of discovering file sharing and all that stuff, I was a huge movie buff. My brother, myself, and my dad would always love to just veg out on the coolest movies and I, I went to film school uh, if you heard that in the uh, we talk a lot about that in the FADCAST interview with the Friends Against Government guys uh, and uh, Car Campit actually this the I think the last yeah last episode was by Car Campit from the Friends Against Government podcast and we literally talk half that episode that I'm on the show with them about movies so uh, so I'm a big movie lover and uh, we had I think we started bragging about how many DVDs we had. Uh, we have this, we still have this enormous collection that he's never gotten rid of. Um, it's like 5,000, 4,000 something. I, I don't know. We haven't counted in forever, and it just keeps stacking up. He still buys DVDs and Blu-rays constantly. I'm not much of a uh, physical 
version anymore. I just kind of subscribe to all my favorite streaming services and get pretty much everything through there. Um, but I still am a user of BitTorrent, you know. 4,000 movies is just not enough for me. I need all of them. And some of them are hard to find. And it's just fascinating that a lot of times they're far easier to access and get to within the sharing economy than they are in the like the actual paid-for like streaming subscription economy a lot of the times. Uh, and I actually just read an article, I think it was yesterday, sometime during the day, um, about BitTorrent was on the rise again because uh, there was an MIT study um, four or five years ago talking about the largest correlation with downloading uh, films in particular uh, on BitTorrent had to do with when uh, movies were released in different countries at different times. Like if, if Germany's theatrical release was a, a month after the U.S.'s, you'd have a huge spike in downloads in Germany because it would leak in the U.S. and then people would offer it up on BitTorrent. And because they wanted to get to it so bad, that and the, the quote-unquote legit market, I guess you could call it, wasn't allowing them access to it, was restricting it, um, uh, they would all download it online. And the study also found that when um, they released things uh, basically at the same time across the globe and in all the major countries, uh, BitTorrent downloads would be a fraction of what they would be in any other context. Um, it was a really cool uh, breakdown from a number of MIT students on how BitTorrent worked and what caused high downloads. And it was all really about restrictions to access the content that people just want it want to get it the easiest way it is to obtain. And uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not wanting to pay for it because Netflix was actually a huge uh, a deterrent to BitTorrent use. We saw a uh, not-so-insignificant decline in BitTorrent use when Netflix came out and they would have these huge catalogs of content available on their platform uh, for just a subscription because everybody already had People were already getting the Netflix subscription, so why go through the work of also going to BitTorrent and downloading it or whatever it is when they had it available already just right on their app or their PlayStation or gaming you know, system, whatever it is that they're using uh, to watch the Netflix application on. And what's funny is that this article is talking about how BitTorrent is back on the rise because now all of these different streaming services, now there's so many, um, and they're producing exclusive content. Amazon has their own shows. Netflix has their own shows. Hulu has their own shows. HBO Go has their own shows. So now you're needing, you know, eight or nine subscription services sometimes to get all of the great content that you've been looking for. So the increase in competition, because, you know, people usually only get one, two, maybe three of these subscription services has led people to go back to BitTorrent to find that one show on, you know, to download Game of Thrones or whatever it is because they only have Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon Prime or, you know, so on and so forth, whatever um, example you're looking for there. But I thought that was a really cool uh, dynamic because the technology really is about access. And um, using that, the fact that it is so resilient is pretty amazing, particularly when uh, uh, Cedars or the, the people who are offering up the content 
um, for sharing on the network are not getting paid. Like there's no monetary reason for them to do this, um, to share it with other people, but they are nonetheless. Um, and uh, I always thought originally that that was really a lot of the heart of the Bitcoin system. And that was one of the main things that first drew my attention toward it. And encryption was also something that was really important to me. I think that was, this was what, seven years ago. So I was probably starting to finally realize how important it was to have a PGP key and keep my stuff encrypted. And I was, I was learning, you know, decent OPSEC at the time. Um, and uh, uh, trying to get all the pieces together. But honestly, I think it was BitTorrent that got me into that. Um, uh, when I was in college, I got a, uh, a downloaded a Harry Potter. I didn't even like Harry Potter at the time, which was kind of funny. Uh, I found myself buying movies that I really, really loved, but downloading stuff that I had this mild passing interest in, but didn't really want to watch just to see. You know, it was like, it was like, I thought of it as my own free trial and I wasn't big into Harry Potter. I was a Lord of the Rings geek back in the day. So, uh, I downloaded Harry Potter just because I was like, oh, I'll, I'll see, I'll see what it's like or whatever. But I got a, I got a letter from, I had to go to the Dean, uh, the Dean of Students to, uh, <laughs> deal with a, uh, a letter that I had downloaded Harry Potter on my computer through their network. And it was hilarious. I, uh. I went and sat in and I was like, so what the hell do they do with this? You know, like, it seems really, really kind of silly, but I don't know. I, I, I was both a little bit nervous, but also more just intrigued by the whole thing. And it was hilarious because the dean of students did not care at all. Um, he was incredibly dismissive about it and basically gave me a statement that sounded very prepackaged and I'm sure he was sick of giving to students. Um, but he uh, he basically said they, they printed out on a piece of paper like four or five pages of code, like one of those like bug reports that you would send to Windows or, I mean, Microsoft or Apple when your computer crashes or a program crashes. Uh, just a whole bunch of code, and he, he was flipping through it. He was like, they sent this. Looks like you downloaded Harry Potter, and they sent all this. He's like flipping through the pages. He's just crap that proves that you did it but basically you're what you have to do is you have to delete the file and not do this again and i was like okay that's fine and uh that was basically that was basically when i learned about vpns <laughs> so the reason i actually downloaded the harry potter the that harry potter movie it was a prisoner of azkaban um uh the reason i had downloaded that one actually was because um uh, like I said, I was a Lord of the Rings fan, so you know, you know, back then it was a no-no. You don't, you don't like Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings at the same time. That just was not cool. You don't do that. Um, but I was doing a project. Uh, I was doing a write-up on the works of um, Alfonso Corian, and he was a favorite, favorite director of mine. But the one movie I had not seen of his was Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Actually, I don't think I had seen U2 Mama Tambien uh, either at that point. Uh, really, really great Spanish uh, coming-of-age story. So if you don't mind subtitles uh, or subbed, um, or dubbed uh, movies, uh, that one's a really good one. Alfonso Corrion is a wonderful, wonderful director. He has so many good movies. 
Um, but anyway, uh, so yeah, BitTorrent was a really key factor in me getting interested in that technology and kind of the power of it, you know, what it meant to actually be quote unquote free on the internet and uh, what encryption was and how to regain your privacy. And uh, so, you know, without, well, you know, without BitTorrent, we wouldn't have Bitcoin for a lot of reasons, technologically and software based. But at the same time, I would not have understood the impact, I think. Uh, I always say that it was kind of a perfect storm of things I was interested in when I first found Bitcoin. Um, economics, uh, like BitTorrent and peer-to-peer technology. Uh, I was getting into encryption really heavily. Like all these things were just fascinating to me. And monetary theory was a huge, huge thing that my brother and I, my brother was an economics major, so we were debating about all of this. Um, at the same time and then it was like bitcoin just dropped in our lap and it was just like this explosion of everything i found fascinating at the time and here was this one tool that brought it all together and uh, you know here i am seven so odd years later and i can't stop talking about it can't stop reading about it it's just it just blows my mind constantly um and the history is so cool um and a big thank you again to petri basson for writing this article uh and uh the following that we will be digging into here uh tomorrow or maybe friday um we will see um one other thing i wanted to hit is uh as many of you know i have just i was just out of the country for a week and some change um in switzerland uh as well as a couple of days in italy in venice And I want to have an episode of just me talking about my experiences with international credit cards. Um, And uh, because I got a Chase credit card that, you know, supposedly has no international fees and was going to be really easy to use over there. And it was hell. And it's some of the things that I had to go through to fix the problems Um, and the amount of frustrations that I had were all problems of trust. And I just, at the same time that I was crazy, crazy annoyed by the entire endeavor, it was also really kind of, it was really eye-opening to see how the trust was restored in the different situations and what we had to do to basically get access to our money that we had already given them. Um, So really, really interesting, and uh, so I want to kind of talk about that in depth, about what happened and, uh, you know, how the how the credit card company treated me uh, during the process. Um, I am not, at the moment, recommending Chase as a bank for any kind of international payments at all. I would recommend staying the hell away from them, but then again, I don't really have anything to compare it to, so maybe it's the best, and they all just suck. Uh, with that, though, Uh, We will close this episode. Um, uh, Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes so you can hear that when I get that episode out, as well as part two of Petri's uh, series here uh, going into the history of the cypherpunks and the other pieces of the Bitcoin puzzle. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to check out Petri on Twitter, and uh, I will link to his article on LinkedIn. 
Uh, and uh, if you would like to support the show, please share it with all of your friends in the crypto and Bitcoin space so they too can hear all of the cool history, technology, and philosophy, and the cypherpunks uh, that built and are building the crypto economy. You can also support the show by uh, directly donating to uh, the Bitcoin address I have available uh, on my uh, Twitter, on CryptoEconomy.life, the website where I post all of these. Um, it's also a good place to uh, leave comments. Um, I've answered a couple that got posted in the last like week and a half when uh, the posts weren't going through because I was out of country. Um, so uh, uh, those are all up now, and um, I've responded to a couple of those. Thanks, guys, for checking that out. Um, I know I've got a lot of plans in line for the website, and hopefully um, I get permission for a couple of the things I want to work on. Uh, and uh, also I have a couple of crypto chats that look like they're going to finally get scheduled and get some things worked out that I think are really, really exciting, so stay tuned for those. With that, we'll close it out here. Thank you guys so much for listening to the Crypto Economy Podcast. I will catch you all tomorrow with another episode. Take it easy, guys.